0: Baker Botts LLP provides podcasts for educational purposes only. They are not legal advice. This communication may constitute attorney advertising. Welcome to the Environmental Evolutions podcast where we explore the changing landscape of environmental law and policy. I'm your host, Megan Birch, coming to you from San Diego, California. For today's episode, I am going to turn over the mic to my esteemed tax partner, Mike Bresson, to provide some practical insights on the wind and tax elements of the Inflation Reduction Act, which was signed into law this summer by President Biden. But that's all for me this episode, because I have to head to the airport again but I know that I am leaving you in the very best of hands, an actual real live tax attorney. We can have a separate episode later on what it is going to take to get these resources permitted and built. But for now, if you have questions for Mike, his contact information is available in our episode notes. Take it away, Mike.
1: Thanks, Megan. President Biden signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act. It's a 730-page bill. There's a lot in it. We're still digesting it. Thanks for having me on today to talk about the uh, solar and uh, wind provisions that are in the bill. Uh, we have the production tax credit, which is a mainly the wind credit that's available for uh, 10 years after the facility is placed in service. You get a credit for every kilowatt hour of electricity produced and sold to an unrelated party. Before the Inflation Reduction Act, that credit was 2.6 cents per kilowatt hour. Subject to a number of phased down. And and in fact, the credit had expired and only was available for new facilities that had begun construction prior to 2022. So, the story of the wind credit and the solar credit for years has been that these credits have constantly been phasing down and out, needing to be renewed by Congress often at the last minute. It makes it very difficult for renewable energy companies to make long term plans. And so the Inflation Reduction Act restored those credits and provided a much longer planning runway for wind and solar and other types of global credits. The investment tax credit was restored to its full 30% rate, retroactive to the beginning of 2022. So regardless of when a facility began construction, if it's placed in service in 2022 or uh, later, it's going to be qualifying for the 30% investment tax credit. For the production tax credit, it was similarly restored to its full unhaircut 2.6 cent per kilowatt hour rate, retroactive to the beginning of 2022. So regardless of when you began construction, if you place the facility in service in 2022 or later, you're going to qualify for the full rate. They changed the way that they did the inflation indexing, so now the uh, rate is actually a two point seven five percent rate. So that's that's the good news. I said that it's a long runway. Really, those extensions of the traditional investment tax credit or ITC and the traditional production tax credit or PTC are only through twenty twenty four. So if you begin construction through the end of twenty twenty four, you'll get those season PTCs, PTCs with which you are familiar. If you begin construction after that, we'll be transforming into a new technology neutral regime where uh, we'll still have a 30% investment tax credit. We'll still have a production tax credit that is similar to the existing credit, except you will no longer be reading a list and seeing that solar qualifies for the ITC or wind qualifies for the PTC. It will be technology neutral. And so as long as you have a technology that produces electricity and has zero emissions, then you will qualify for that production tax credit or investment tax credit, which kicks in if you don't begin construction before 2025 as a long runway, it will start phasing out the later of 2033. That would be the earliest year. It would have its last 100% rate. Or if greenhouse gas emissions from the electricity industry have not been reduced, to 25% or less at the 2022 levels, the credit will have an extended life, which in my understanding is the current projections are that won't happen until the 2050. So it's a very long runway now on renewable assets. And the only bump in the road is waiting to see when the IRS comes out and gets guidance on, well, who has zero greenhouse gas emissions? You know, The expectation is that certainly wind and solar will qualify, but we'll have to see what the IRS says about that when they come out with guidance. On top of those extensions of the traditional ITC and PTC, there there are a number of other benefits. One of the new benefits is that the investment tax credit or ITC has been expanded to cover some new types of property. There's a, a new credit for energy storage technology. Traditionally, you might think batteries, but that can apply to other technologies like pumping Water uphill, so you can take advantage of its potential energy when it's coming back downhill. Just all energy storage technology. And whereas traditionally in wind and solar, you're concerned about, well, is my battery only charged from wind and solar? So I qualify for the ITC for or, or is it charged no, from another source? And so I only have reduced investment tax credit or no credit. And now under the Inflation Reduction Act, it doesn't matter what the source of charging is. It could be entirely grid charged and still qualify for the additional credit. There's an additional credit for uh, conversion of biomass to methane. There's a credit for microgrid controllers. Again, these are all new investment tax credits. There's a new series of bonus credit for both the investment tax credit. And the production tax credit. And you can get, uh, if you're claiming the investment tax credit, you could bump your investment tax credit up from 30% to 40%, or even to 50%, and in certain cases, up to 60%. So there's a potentially much larger level of investment tax credit available. There's a bonus credit if you have sufficient domestic content in your facility. There are bonus credits if you locate your facilities in certain types of areas called energy communities, which would be brownfields under the EPA rules or near a closed coal line or near a closed fired electricity generating unit, or also if there's just a significant economic activity in the traditional energy sector and there's an above average unemployment rate in that area in the preceding year, there's also eligibility for the um, energy community bonus credit. And then finally, there's a credit for a location in in low-income communities. So there's going to be a lot of um, interest in figuring out where to uh, locate facilities to qualify for this bonus credit and how to uh, obtain enough domestic content for the facilities to qualify for the bonus credit. So I've talked about the investment tax credit as the traditional solar credit and the production tax credit as the traditional wind credit. There is some crossing of the streams. For offshore wind, there's been more interest in the investment tax credit, just because if you're eligible for both, you've got to do an analysis to see which credit is projected to give you more money. And now, one of the features of the Inflation Reduction Act is that solar is once again eligible to claim the the production tax credit. So now, for all solar technology, sponsors will need to evaluate whether the production tax credit, first of all, whether they're eligible for it. And if they are, whether that might be a richer credit than the investment tax credit. When I talked about bonus credits, I talked about increasing the level of investment tax credit, but those bonus credits are also available for the production tax credit. For the production tax credit, the bells you need to ring to get the higher level of credit are uh, are the same, but to get that higher level of credit is just bumping up your credit level by 10% or 20% or 30%. So it, it's not quite the incremental increase in credit. is not quite as much for, as for the, the investment tax credit. But most of what I've talked about or all of what I've talked about so far is good news. There, there's a bit of bad news to, to get these increased credit levels. There are going to be new wage and apprenticeship requirements during the construction of the facility or repair. The workers are going to have to be paid David's making wages, and there's going to have to be a certain number of labor hours that are worked by certified apprentices in order to qualify for the full levels of credit that I've been talking about. If you are subject to those wage and apprenticeship rules and you don't satisfy them, then the credit is cut by 80%. So it's a pretty simple, penalty. That's the worst news, but there's good news on the tail end of that. Number one, those rules generally aren't in effect yet. The rules only will go into effect. uh, First, the IRS needs to provide guidance on how the wage and apprenticeship rules work. Then 59 days need to pass. And if at that point you have not yet begun construction on your facility, you're subject to these new wage and apprenticeship rules. If you've already begun construction on the facility before that point, then you're not subject to the rules. If your facility is less than one megawatt of capacity, you're similarly not subject to these new wage and apprenticeship rules. So where we're all looking forward to the IRS guidance on how these wage and apprenticeship rules work, although I think the general bias in the industry would be that the thing IRS can take as long as they want to come out with those rules. So we can wait for the longest possible time before we have to worry about uh, how to comply with those rules, because that's going to be a significant undertaking because the rules apply, not just to the developer. But to contractors and subcontractors. So, figuring out how to uh, police the satisfaction of the wage and apprenticeship requirements and to deal with some of the uh, sure provisions. You know, so if you flunk these provisions, it's not the end of the world. You can go back and top off the workers who are underpaid and pay the IRS a fine and still get the O rated credit. But that requires a lot of effort. And so, I'll need some guidance on how to do that. And so, Participants in the industry are just now figuring how to work with these rules how to, and curing up to figure out how to comply with them. Another significant new feature of the Inflation Reduction Act is the ability to um, transfer credits to third parties. A significant problem with the current investment tax credit and production tax credit is it often gives the tax credit to a party that has no ability to use a tax credit. You have to have a tax liability to offset the credit against. And often there's enough tax benefits that are provided to players on the wind and silver industry that they don't have a tax liability against which to offset the credit. During Build Back Better, there's a lot of discussion of direct pay where a person entitled to the credit would just show that on their tax return. And even if they had no tax liability, the government would write them a check as a tax refund. Even though they paid no tax, they would just get a direct payment of the amount of the credit and the last minute change to the bill that has been replaced for most people that there's still a small small direct pay component but the more significant component is an ability to transfer credits there's an ability if you're entitled to say a hundred dollar credit to sell that credit to an unrelated party for cash that might be attractive to many it's it still remains to be seen because currently or I should say, before the Inflation Reduction Act, the, the way that one typically dealt with that the inability to use the credit was to find a party who could use the credit and enter into a, a tax equity financing structure with that counterparty, where that counterparty invested money in the facility and effectively got most of their investment return from claiming the credit. So th- those are fairly complex arrangements, and there's a limited amount of tax equity financing. So there's been a lot of talk about how to simplify monetization of the credit. So this idea of the ability to sell the credits is intended to fill that gap and make credits easier to monetize. And we'll have to see what develops in the market because the traditional tax equity financing structure allows an owner facility to monetize not only the credit, but also depreciation deductions with respect to the facility, which the new credit transfer provisions don't allow monetization of the deductions only of the credit. So a developer might be leaving something on the table by abandoning a traditional tax equity financing structure and going to a credit sale. But on the other side, that the credit sales are going to be, while still somewhat less complex than the traditional tax equity financing. So we'll need to see what develops in the market in the credit monetization area.
0: A big thanks to Mike for this IRA rundown. No doubt, the IRS has a Santa-level to-do list facing them, and we'll be sure to have Mike back as the agency begins to check things off that list. Thank you for spending time with us. Thank you for listening to this BakerBots podcast. For more information on BakerBots practices, please visit us at BakerBots.com. For over 180 years, through 13 offices in nine countries, BakerBots has the experience knowledge, and people to solve our clients' most significant legal issues. This presentation is provided by Baker Botts LLP for educational and informational purposes only. It is not legal advice. Under the rules of certain jurisdictions, this communication may constitute attorney advertising.